Welcome to Canadian Equities, a short bi-weekly podcast series where we speak with top business leaders and hear their perspectives on the industries in which they operate. For the full-length version, find our link in the podcast notes or connect with us at acumencapital.com. I'm your host, Robert Cooper. Today, I'm joined by Enerflex Limited President and CEO, Mark Rossiter. Enerflex is a global operating company that engineers, designs, manufactures, and provides aftermarket support for equipment, systems, and turnkey facilities used to process and move natural gas from the wellhead to the pipeline. Enerflex trades on the TSX under the ticker EFX. Today, we will be discussing leadership, the natural gas equipment market, energy transition, and international business. Mark, thanks so much for spending time with Canadian Equities today. Robert, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mark, for those who may not know the company, what does it do and where does it operate? Uh, Enerflex is, uh, we build, service, install, own, and operate natural gas infrastructure in across 55 offices in 17 countries. Uh, an easy way for me to explain it is that we're sort of Ford, Hertz, and Uber all wrapped up into one for modularized natural gas uh, infrastructure. We've got two world-class manufacturing facilities, one in Calgary, one in Houston, Texas. We own and operate close to a million horsepower of natural gas compression assets around the world. And we got about 150 service technicians that are driving and flying all around the world to keep our clients' equipment running. One thing that's very interesting that we do is that we we combine all these different services into what we call integrated projects. And if I can give you a quick example of an integrated project, uh, in, in the Middle East, we had a client that was producing about 15,000 barrels of oil. But to do that, they were flaring about 15 million standard cubic feet a day of gas. So Enerflex people, we, we built about a $70 million gas plant that took the flare gas, treated it, used half of it to generate electricity and treated the other half to go into a local pipeline. And we got the, the oil production going. And we did this on a 10 year take or pay contract for the client on a, you know, fixed monthly billing for the deal. So we designed it. We packaged all the equipment in our Houston shop. We installed it with our team in, in Oman, and we currently are on a 10-year operations contract to operate that for the local local folks. So that's that's sort of all of our services brought into one to give you an idea of some of the fun stuff we do. Many people may not know, but you're an, an engineering officer in the Canadian Army. Tell us about that experience. Yeah. And second, the lessons you took on leadership from the military that may or may not apply to the corporate environment. Yeah, sure, Robert. I mean, I joined RMC. I went to a military college. That's where I got my engineering degree when I was 17 years old. I came from a relatively straightforward upbringing in Nova Scotia, and I worked hard at sports, but I never really experienced any sort of true hardship in my life. Well, going to RMC and going through Army training, it was hard. There's no doubt about it. But it it, it had a profound impact on on my life. I, a lot of my best friends I met when I was there. Some of the lessons that I took from it was in in high stress environments, good and bad leadership choices and behaviors are very obvious when you're under stress. Um, you learn a lot by watching. You learn a lot by watching how your friends um, act under stress, how senior people act under stress. And then you also get to practice a lot yourself. Like in, in training, the main way that they train junior officers is that they give them opportunities to lead their peers. So you'd be in a group with, say, 10 or 20 people, and uh, somebody will come along and say, hey, Rosser, you're up next. you got to lead this group of people to do something. you got to go on a 10-mile patrol or you got to do 
a move 15 kilometers to a new camp, whatever it is, you're all of a sudden in charge and you've got to lead people that are tired, haven't eaten, pretty grumpy, but you got to commit yourself to the mission and, and get it done. That was really hard. It was super challenging. But what I learned from it was, for starters, we have a saying in, in, in the military, before you can lead, you have to learn how to follow. So you had to learn the skills of being a soldier before you could even dream about being a leader of those soldiers. And that was drilled into us. And along with that, that comes a lot of humility. Like you really have to realize that this stuff isn't easy. A, a big thing I take from it, and I tell a lot of young leaders, is you have to be yourself. There's no blueprint for this stuff. You have to be really true to yourself, your own skills, you, you know, your own personality, and, and just do your best. In the corporate world, I, I tell people a lot of times, don't be too quick to take on a leadership role. Back to that saying of before you can lead, you have to learn how to follow. Perfect your craft. Be just the world's best individual contributor and really know all the skills that it takes to do your particular job and then take on a leadership opportunity when that comes. But don't be too anxious to do it. You know, really, really get good at what you're doing first. And once you've learned how to follow, then you can start thinking about whether or not you'd make a great leader. And if leadership is right for you, it's not right for everybody. And frankly, in a more senior leadership role like I am in today, um, there's no replacement for patience and reconnaissance when you're executing on a business strategy. And a lot of the very best general officers throughout history exhibited those two traits of patience and reconnaissance in equal measure. And, and that's what I'm trying to get better at these days. How does Enerflux fit into the so-called energy transition? Robert, I think we fit into the transition like, like a hand in a glove. <laughs> You know, when, when you think about that word energy transition and the so-called energy transition, what we're really doing is, is we're thinking about how can we live the same quality of life, the same standard of living, um, which consumes energy, but let's, let's make that energy in that way of life lower carbon. Well, the only way to do it is to re-engineer the actual sources of energy. We've been building these sources of energy for 40 years. So we feel like we're in a very good uh, position to rethink how this energy is is, de is delivered to people. Um, we've been building modular plug and play energy systems for over 40 years. Um, and so we can design those same systems to be low carbon. It's, it's, it's not a technologically challenging thing for us to do. For instance, we've built 150 carbon capture projects in the history of our company. And we, Interflex equipment handles over 20% of the CO2 that's currently sequestered in the United States. So the technology is there. I think making it better and, and more efficient over time, that's all really important. But Interflex people and our facilities and our technology, we've got the ability to do these projects today. Those same skill sets, uh, we've, we've packaged over 3 million horsepower of electric compression and electric gas plants in the history of our company. How much different is it operating in foreign markets than it is in Canada? Uh, it's extremely different. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been, I was in the United States operating for much longer than I was in Canada. And there are subtle differences between the two markets. Uh, but once you leave North America, things are a lot different. And a lot of the differences come in the maturity of the gas supply ecosystem within that country and what drives supply demand in that particular space. In North America, you sit back and you go, okay, what's a Henry Hub price? what's gas storage, and you can get a pretty good picture of what's going to happen in the, in the industry for the next 12, 18, 24 months. 
internationally, it's, it's almost micro supply demand. So in Brazil, for instance, we, we love Brazil as a country. We've been investing a lot of money there in the last uh, decade. A lot of their natural gas is going for power gen because hydroelectric is very intermittent because of rainy dry season. So Henry Hub could be $1.25. People in Brazil don't care because they've got the natural gas. It's a way of providing electricity that they need. And so uh, there could be projects that get sanctioned in Brazil when things in North America are, are looking really poorly. So it's a lot of fun. And you know what's different is every country we operate in has its own drivers. The customers are frequently government owned or they're multinationals operating under government license. So there's a geopolitical angle to it as well. Funny thing, uh, you know, I would say that Canada is more geopolitically risky today than a lot of the countries within which we operate, especially as it pertains to production of natural gas. So everyone's a little bit different. A lot of the countries aren't as mature in, in gas supply. And when we go into a country that's growing its gas supply, that's great for us because we bring a lot of expertise. We bring a lot of technology. We bring the ability to allow them to develop their gas, their gas reserves by buying equipment from us, from renting it from us, from asking us to build the entire plant and operate under a 10 year take or pay. So we're really quite flexible. Some of those countries are, uh, are growing their production. So given what you just said, how has that informed your go-to-market strategy in those various markets? Uh, well, well, great question. The, the go-to-market strategy, uh, you know, what I, you know, I, I frequently tell people we're like Ford, Hertz, Uber all wrapped up when it comes to natural gas equipment. And each of those markets want something different. North America, especially Canada, is Ford. They just want to buy stuff. The operators are very good at driving their own cars. They don't want anybody to drive them around. They just want good cars on time and on budget. And frankly, uh, have become much more cost conscious over the last five, 10 years than they were prior to that. So, so our go-to-market strategy in Canada is all about being cost competitive with good equipment and, and good service. The United States was very similar for a long time, but just recently, about four years ago, we added the rentals part of our business into the U.S. Because there's a pretty big component of U.S. customers that they want us to aggregate demand for compression and deploy it with our expertise because they feel like we can do it better than than them doing it themselves. And so that's a big part of our of our current revenue stack in the United States is the rental business, and it's steady. The engineered systems is, has the ability to give us the most torque, but the rentals business is quite steady. So we go to market in the United States, rentals, new units, and service. Globally, it's almost it's almost 100% asset ownership opportunities. So people don't want to buy stuff. They want us to be the vertical integrator, of the mod modularize it, ship it, install it, and also hire operations staff to run it for us because we may feel if I'm an operator in, in Bahrain, I may be a really good oil producer, but I'm not necessarily great on gas. It's sort of new. So I'm going to bring somebody from a, that's got the experience to come help us do that in terms that we that work for us. So it's it's complex how we go to market in each of those countries, but it's very much rooted in the customer context in that specific country. And I feel that even though having sales, service, rentals and installation business lines can lead to a complex business that's not always easy for investors to understand, it's rooted in the customer context of the global natural gas industry. And I'm very happy with the complexity because in each geography, each country, it's a lot simpler. 
than when you look at the business. So a lot of people think we need to electrify things that used to be based on fossil fuel combustion. We've been electrifying things forever. So our skill sets are our desire to build technology-centric facilities, own, operate, service. It fits right in with the energy transition. And that's why we're, we're really quite excited uh, about that as a growing market for us. Mark Rossiter of Enerflex, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Okay, Robert, thanks a lot for having me and uh, have yourself a great November, December. Note that this podcast is not making an investment recommendation on any companies discussed. We welcome your comments on today's episode or any other episode. Connect with us at acumencapital.com.